Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you for joining us. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Kate Sadler. With me in studio is my co-host, Charles. Good to be here. Good to be here. So we're here for another week of landscape design care topic. And today we thought we'd do something just a little bit different. We'll see how <laughs> we'll see how this episode is received. We're not obviously a literary review podcast, and this isn't exactly a book club episode, but I thought we'd take a look at Charles' bookshelf to see what mm-hmm. you're reading, what you find interesting, what helps you from a creative perspective, and in terms of keeping a hand in learning more about the field and, and what to apply to it in your own work. And I would contribute, but I, I don't really read much landscape material. You know, I guess I haven't really ever tried to pick up any of the books that you have on the shelf that's like, you know, a biography of this, that, or the other. It might be because I'm finishing my doctorate. (laughs) (laughs) I defend in December. So once that's done, I hope I'll have more time for just like leisurely reading. Mm -hmm. And, And I have looked at some of the trade journals and looked at like the structure of the articles just to help us start to write our own articles in comparable, you know, publications. So that's, that's more from a research perspective or done like a literature review. So I do find it interesting, but I haven't had the free time. But you do it just for fun, I think, but also in a way that informs your work. And so we'll talk about kind of a range of, of the different books that have just resonated with you. We'll certainly call out titles and authors if it's something that you listeners are interested in following up on. And if we can, maybe we'll compile a list to, to go in our show notes so that you can, you can follow that as well and some of your favorites. So this week, we're just a little late in recording. We actually went away for the weekend to a lake on the eastern side of Texas, which was just beautiful. So um, we yes, saw Sam, fall color. Sam Rayburn Lake, which is a reservoir. And apparently the largest lake in Texas. Was, I want to guess it was 50 miles long or so. It's some of those reservoir lakes, the majority of them it is sizable, but these sort of extension fingers, since it's been dammed, mm. go on and on and on mm-hmm. and on. And I looked at it on the map and it didn't like register as a large lake, but I think that might be because Texas is so big. I just, <laughs> but when you're there, you know, we had quite the view. And, and the it, fall color was more fall that, color. Yeah. So what were some of the species there that were giving us great Texan fall color? I mean, the main one is the sweet gum that I can remember. Yeah, okay. And so that, there's probably a scientific name for it, but where the leaves on the tree turn color at different rates. Mm -hmm. So some are green, then some are changing into a fall color. And then beyond that, the leaves change multiple colors. So it might, a leaf might start off as almost like a burgundy blackish bronze and then it turns to like a dark red and then an orange and then a yellow mm-hmm. and so on a given leaf there may be multiple colors yeah. and then it's a palmate leaf like pointed like a point like fingers mm-hmm. similar to a japanese maple the texture of that of those palms next to each other that are various colors is is quite striking mm-hmm. it's very it's a very vertical mm-hmm. tree so when it gets old It'll open up a bit and there'll be these 
sort of like upraised arms mm. is what the canopy looks like. But I mean, a lot of that part of Texas, it looks like it's there's agricultural forestry going on. Mm-hmm. So there's we didn't come across sweet gums that were hundreds and hundreds of years mm. old. So most of them are almost look like a Christmas tree. They're very mm-hmm. conical and upright. Lots of pine. So the pine mm-hmm. trees, yeah. the loblolly and the slash pine are the two main. So those don't, as they mature, there's almost no leaves on two thirds of the trunk. And then the, the top of it, it looks almost like an Italian pine. Mm. And so the sweet gums have this beautiful color. And then the backdrop are the pine trees. And I think we also saw some light, the bright yellow willows, was it? Oh, right. On the riverbank, which is just sort of idyllic. <laughs> So yeah, those were really striking, like the way the sunlight mm-hmm. caught those. So I know that, you know, the sugar maple of the northeastern United States takes a lot of credit for fall <laughs> seasonal color. It's what we might see on our postcards or whatever. But this was quite, it was quite nice to see something to to keep in mind as we do more planting around down, down here. So, you know, there's regions too that they're going to map between Austin is, and then you go south, I guess south west and there's san antonio and so that sort of corridor there's lots of there's rivers so there's mm. a colorado river goes through that vicinity which is an enormous one of the major u.s rivers well there's two apparently at a minimum two colorado rivers so there's the oh. colorado river that feeds a lot of the irrigation in california i think oh. and then there's this colorado river here in texas and oh, i remember looking like we crossed over and i saw the sign and i was like huh, I wonder how that works. And then I determined they were two different rivers. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you know, I guess it's common for where the areas where there were red river banks that <laughs> you might just call it, call it the Colorado River. Oh, yeah. right. So there's two regions we haven't been to, but they're well photographed and documented that I would love to visit. So there's a riparian or river area. I think it's near Austin where it, these very old bald cypresses. So bald cypresses that are like 30 feet around, which is enormous. Imagine like the biggest old oak tree in Mm, England mm -hmm. or in another part of the world. And that's what these bald cypress look like. And those have, I remember seeing a a grove of them at the Johnson Space Center at NASA, Mm -hmm. which was was like a parking lot tree. And those turn that beautiful, like rust color. Then there's another river area. It's near... In the San Antonio Austin region, I forget exactly where. And it's called something like the area of lost maples or the mm. valley of lost maples. So there don't there does not tend to be a lot of maples as you get further west in the US. So like when you get east of in the desert areas, in my knowledge, there's not many maples because it's like a big mm, broadleaf. Mm-hmm. So there's pockets in Texas where there are maples and mm. it's very striking for mm. fall color. Oh, neat. Okay. And so it's a real, it's like a tourist destination. Yeah. Future trips. So let's take a look at your bookshelf. <laughs> we'll kind of talk about some of the books that you have been enjoying lately and any that stand out in your memory as, as real winners. And what would you like to start with? Well, let's see that Bill Logan book. I've talked about that a lot. Yeah. So you were really into that. <laughs> that's how. William Bryant Logan yeah. is the author. That's his you know, f- full name. He, I think he's from California. He lives in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He has an arborist company. He's written Sprout Land, as in like a tree sprout. That's his latest book, mm-hmm. to my knowledge. He wrote a book all about oaks and acorns. And then the 
more or less the indigenous cultures that made a a flower that uh, subsisted on acorns. Mm -hmm. That was their main diet. So he's written quite a few books. What's interesting about him, his writing is he has an incredible vocabulary. Mm. So, I mean, I'm reasonably educated and I read quite a bit, but I mean, he would, every few pages, there would be a word I had never, ever, I couldn't even guess what it meant. I mean, the level of, <laughs> so that's sort of fun. I mean, it, mm. and, he, and he used it very appropriately. It wasn't like, I'm, like it wasn't someone showing off, you know, like oh. I'm going to use a fancy word. Oh. It was like a very incredible description of, yeah. instead of a, like a big bunch of twigs. It was like half a bunch of twigs. It was a word for half a bunch of twigs. You know, I've seen authors do that where it's almost like you feel like they've it's like in chapter four, they've discovered this new word and then it shows up for the rest of the book. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, so his writing, he travels. And so like we enjoy traveling. So I identify with mm. he'll travel for a book. So he'll visit, like he visited an area of Japan where they, do this coppicing practice mm -hmm. where they're cutting the new growth from a tree and using those shoots for for charcoal or for, mm -hmm. uh, for building materials. Well, because the book really, the theme seemed to be, you mentioned agricultural forestry in this part of Texas we were in, which I assume is like lumber for building or paper, but cultures around the world have used agricultural forestry for a number of different purposes, whether you know, building material or windbreaks and protection or, or harvesting some sort of food from the trees, depending. So it seemed like this book, from what I gathered, what you shared with me. <laughs> Incessantly <laughs> talking about it when we're having our meals happen. Yeah. Well, it had, it had a lot to do with that concept. Right. That the trees are this integral part of cultures, you know, that it's this very integrated part of, I mean, it's, like mind, body, spirit. Mm. So it's providing food. There's like a, a, there's a cultural connection. This plant is of this region. It produces mm -hmm. this food that's of this region. Well, and when we think of tilled soil as agriculture, as opposed to cultivated trees, or even trees that are sort of growing naturally, but they're being pruned and tended and, and fires are being set to clear the, the, the ground around them. Like there are different forms of agriculture that right. may be different from what we're used to seeing. You mentioned coppicing was sort of a focus of this book. What is that? I don't know that we may have mentioned it in a previous episode, but I don't know we've gone into detail. Oh, right. So there's terms coppicing and pollarding. So coppicing is cutting a plant almost to the ground, a woody plant almost to the ground. So if it's done with both, so when those practices are properly done, it produces sustainable shoots. Mm. And so well, why do people do that? Well, historically, they were used for like basket weaving throughout mm. many cultures. So let's say it's a Japanese cedar, a cryptomeria. You're, let's say you're in Japan. So the tree grows up to about eight or 10 feet. And you cut it off at that height when it's relatively young. So it's maybe the trunk is a couple of inches. So where you cut it, it'll put out new shoots. Mm -hmm. And then those are very uniform. So, so for building materials, it's like creating these perfectly shaped. And so we put out multiple shoots. And then every two years or every one year or three years, you could cut them. And it produces this very uniform material hmm. where, so that's, Polarding, where it grows up to a certain height. Like at the Berkeley campus, they have London plane trees mm -hmm. that are polarded. 
encompassing is cutting it almost to the ground. So it's generally, it's more conducive for shrubs. So mm-hmm. willows, that's done, like the red twig dogwood, where it's, it's very ornamental, where you, you can selectively cut it to the ground, not necessarily the whole plant, but mm-hmm. the older branches, mm-hmm. and then it produces the bright red twigs. Oh, great. Okay. So coppicing to the ground, almost polarding, you still have a main trunk and big branches, but then you're cutting off last year's shoots essentially right it's i mean it could be one or two years and is it mulberries near the campanile that they do that in berkeley's campus those are london plane trees oh just kidding you just said that (laughs) (laughs) it's possible to do it i can picture them i just yeah with fruiting trees yeah it would be fodder or food for animals Mm. in some cases because it'd be these tender new shoots Mm -hmm. yeah and indigenous cultures Logan tracked many cultures and like in most continents, Africa, mm-hmm. Japan, North America. We went all over different parts of Europe. I think the Basque region in Spain, maybe also, where these indigenous people, they would have different plots. So one section, like one three acre section, they would they would cut this year. And then an adjacent section they would have cut three years ago. And so there's a sense of rotation. Yeah. And then on the forest floor where that creates, then the sunlight changes. So when it's Mm -hmm. first cut, then you get incredible biodiversity. So you have raspberries and all kinds of plants, which they would, there was some level of cultivation. Even without cultivation, you're getting a lot of diversity because you still have a tree, but there's there's no fine branches. So, So they would be harvesting from the forest floor, an area where they just harvested the wood. Well, it's interesting because we did our designing for diversity episode. We didn't really mention, because it does seem like an agricultural kind of focus, but we didn't really mention rotation of, mm. of plants. And maybe there's room there for a future episode to kind of think through, even in a garden as you're doing annuals and maybe even perennials, is rotation something you should be considering? Right. Um, and certainly pruning. I mean, getting some of these big branches cleared out changes the, you know, the ecosystem that's underneath it. So mm-hmm. that can happen in our own yards. When you invite someone in to do like tree work, you want to be prepared because it's going to change the sun situation quite a bit. And it can, I remember another consulting arborist, sometimes we're called in as consulting arborists act after horrible things happen. You know, unfortunately folks do something. So this man, he was telling I've had him as an instructor and I know him. It was, imagine the most beautiful, a, you know, very historic European beech tree, which is a popular, especially in the Eastern US on old estates, like Mm -hmm. in the 1800s or even earlier. So like a tree that's like a hundred feet wide and maybe almost 200 feet tall. And it was on on a historic estate that was overgrown. And so seedlings had grown up and covered the whole lawn area. So this tree, it wasn't being outcompeted, but there was adjacent shade. So new owners bought the property. It might have even been an institution that bought it. And they said, we're going to give this tree the best, you know, we're going to really baby it and take care of it. And they cut down all the adjacent trees that were like seedlings that had grown up to maybe 30 feet tall. And so this beech tree ended up dying mm-hmm. because it was such a shock. Mm-hmm. And it was an old tree. And so the removal, <laughs> it, it was radically changing. Mm. that ecosystem 
I mean, not to mention trees communicate with each other. It may just have been very sad. Right, <laughs> it lost all of, its, sad. all of its friends. <laughs> all of its friends, yeah. Give us another title. What's another book you recommend for garden enthusiasts, landscape lovers, well, let's design see. enthusiasts? I mean, there's definitely ones we want to get to. The Claudia West and Thomas Rainier book that's that's well-known, uh, Planting in a Post-Wild World. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, that has received a lot of attention, which is very deserved. So Claudia West, her background, well, I'm not sure actually her, her formal training. She's really a perennial expert and she works or she has worked for a perennial producer, a very large scale perennial producer. Thomas Rainier's background is as a landscape architect. He worked at Ohm Van Sweden for a period of time. My guess is that they have collaborated on projects is how they met. That was a groundbreaking book. And that, so with the idea of what, what is a post-wild world? It's rare to find an area that is really wild, that is not, that doesn't have plants from somewhere else, that has, where the plants haven't been cut down. And this idea of, so the idea of like pristine nature that's been untouched by human intervention, there's not much of that left. So there's plenty of areas to think of, well, rural, suburban, and city. There's been a lot of human intervention there. So it's not reasonable to return that to some pristine nature either. So there's ways of planting with more or less grasses or low, like a low matrix of plantings that's repeated. And then using perennials, larger perennials, like a Joe Pye weed or other similar plants, that would be where the perennials are an architectural element. And mm. also shrubs and, and then some shrubs and trees. So the end result would be an ecosystem that's relatively balanced, that would have native plants, that is not a high-maintenance landscape mm-hmm. that needs to be edged and mulched and, and cut back. And so the, the sort of post-wild world is, there's another term, rewilding, which is sort of reintroducing, it's via human, human intervention, mm-hmm. but it's like re- reintroducing a wild-like landscape where it's plants that coexist naturally together. I mean, I imagine some of the prairie work that, others have done is similar to that where it's right and again you're probably thinking in terms of like more diversity than less and Mm -hmm. native plants were possible as long as you know pests and blight haven't haven't rendered it like really endangered like we were talking about the american elm last time Um, and that like you know you can attempt to plant it but it really is gonna it's gonna get it just isn't gonna have a chance just because of the degree of the destruction. So mm-hmm. it's it's optimistic to think that maybe we can return things to a certain condition, but but not necessarily possible. Like things just maybe the way they are sort of altered. I think I think of like the hills of California, which if you live there, you get really kind of used to the the grasses that are there. But I don't think very many of them are native. Like they're not mm. actually what was there. <laughs> and the grasses right. that are there have adapted it nicely and you get the, you know, the beautiful golden hills and stuff. But I don't even know how you would go about reversing that. You know, there's parts of California. I mean, some of my travelers have been to European countries where they've done this and throughout the U.S. where there's been areas that have been forested with non-natives. Mm. Like the Norway spruce is a popular plant. So outside of Europe, it's not a native plant. And so in some cases, there's succession planning when those trees age out, they're reintroducing what would be native, mm. which is, I mean, it's a slow process. Mm-hmm. I remember having corresponding with a podcast listener 
and they express interest in discussing naturalized versus native. Mm -hmm. So naturalized is, I mean, there's even a term for my sister happened to be adopted. And so she went through a naturalization process because mm -hmm. she was born in another country. And so that happens with plants. I mean, the plant has been here so for a period of time, for in a long period of time. Those orange, I think it's an Asian daylily that's orange in the Northeast. You see them growing alongside mm -hmm. the roadsides. So those are naturalized. Mm -hmm. They just reproduce. To my knowledge, they're not invasive. They're not causing a serious problem. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, but... So they're, they're coexisting with plants that were there mm -hmm. in the past. And that's sort of the post-wild world. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Well, what about something along a different topic? Maybe you read a lot of biographies. So do you have oh, some biographies right. to recommend? Well, I read the Olmsted biography. That was excellent. I just finished the Frank Gehry biography. Mm -hmm. So I, I like reading about related fields. Mm. So it could be a, someone that you know, an inventor, someone that made movies. I like to read about architects because that's, I would call it an allied field to landscape mm -hmm. design, landscape architecture. And do you have the author for either of those? Paul Goldberger mm -hmm. is, who's a, I mean, he's one of the most well-known U.S. architectural critics. Mm. He was at the New York Times, I don't think the order. He's been at the New York Times. He's been at the New Yorker. I've seen him speak when I was at Syracuse, he spoke. I think I've seen him speak in New York City. So he's a, he's a well-traveled author and he participates. He's friends friendly with these architects. He's in that world. So it's natural to do a biography for someone that you've known, you know, for maybe 50. He knew uh, Frank Gehry for many decades. What I find inspiring about biographies is I mean, more or less the struggles that the people go through. It gives, mm -hmm. it, I find it encouraging to hear how difficult it was, mm -hmm. the ups and downs. And so there's, I find there's a lot of lessons. To, even it's not exactly, we're not building buildings usually. I mean, mm -hmm. occasionally we get involved a little bit in that, but it's related, like the creative process, uh, what inspires them, how they manage people in their practice, like the demands of it, the fun parts of it. For, I mean, for Gary, like the upsets too, where he had a big commission that fell through. And sometimes it's like several of those mm -hmm. in a row. Mm -hmm. And just hearing like the Disney in Los Angeles. What's the name of the, the Disney Con concert hall? Concert hall. Mm -hmm. And so that, I mean, was multiple decades from when, from when it became an idea to when it was built. It was stalled mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And that's not uncommon with politics and fundraising. And, and so I find that the biographies are entertaining. And then you learn sort of, like the world that they grew up in, like Frank Gehry, he was attracted to and he befriended artists in the Los Angeles art scene. Mm. And then as those people grew in their career, it was people in the New York art scene in the 60s up until the present day. And so he became not even a groupie. I mean, he, be he became one of the people in that, in that art scene mm -hmm. of how they communicated, how they promoted themselves, you know, how they socialized with each other. And so that was part of his career. That was, he was a little bit of an outsider amongst the architects. I mean, another takeaway, he walked away from very lucrative opportunities over and over and over mm. where, he, where he realized it wasn't going to be a good fit. Mm -hmm. Like he got into furniture, furniture designing and manufacturing. And so he would walk away from something when he felt like this has really taken all my attention. I don't want to be a furniture manufacturer. Mm -hmm. now, I mean, he was good at it, but it was taking him away from the architecture. Sure. 
All right. Anything else on your list for our listeners? And of course, if you're out there and interested in sharing with us, we'll be happy to, you know, take a look at your favorite book. So feel free to tweet us or find us on Facebook or email us and we'll certainly give that a go. So we look forward to your recommendations. And along those lines, actually, I'm just remembering you, you are attending a talk tomorrow. So there's a book we're going to feature in just a second that relates to that talk. So can you tell us about, about that? Oh, sure. It's an author I'm very fond of. I've corresponded with this author a little bit as some of the, the talks we've given overlap with her books. Mm-hmm. Her name is Judith Tankard. I think she lives in, the, in Boston or the Boston area. She's a garden, I mean, I would call her a garden writer. So, mm. I mean, she's a, probably a gardener and an enthusiast, but she's, to my mind, I mean, an author at a high, high level. So that's a little bit of a distinction. There's people, I mean, someone like Frank Gehry or Olmsted. I mean, to my knowledge, they didn't do hardly any writing. Then the other extreme would be people that are not designers and they're expert writers. Mm. I mean, Bill Logan is, he's a, a pretty well-known arborist and he's a very well-known author. So he's really an exception. So Judith Tankert is an exceptional author. And I mean, her sort of subset would be women in the landscape profession. Mm-hmm. So in landscape design, landscape architecture. So she does quite a bit of traveling to European gardens. So the books some of the early American female landscape architects, well, there's an overlap, like uh, Gertrude Jenkel, she's written on her, so that she was a, an English landscape designer that worked with a well-known architect, uh, Lutyens, that they partnered. And then the early American female landscape designers, landscape architects, were more or less informed by some of the European counterparts. Mm-hmm. So she's written on Ellen Shipman, Beatrix Ferrand, I believe, and there's other ones. So like a, a recent book I read by Judith Tankard that she's going to speak on tomorrow, which by the time this comes out, it'll already happen. But it's, Oh, yes, darn. It's the Institute of Classical Art and Architecture, mm-hmm. and they have chapters throughout the United States. They may be in Canada, I'm not sure. Occasionally there's overlap, even though it's a U.S., organization. And so she's going to speak on the gardens of the arts and crafts movement. Hmm. And so these talks are often recorded. So it's possible that it, that they would be available. So it's, I think it's the New England chapter of Institute of Classical Art and Architecture. And so I find that quite interesting, the intersection of architecture and landscape and, or gardens, however you want to phrase that. So that's like repeated throughout history. There's always some kind of building and some kind of a landscape. Mm-hmm. And so she wrote about that very beautifully in this Gardens of Art of the Arts and Crafts movement. How, I mean, similar with Capability Brown, there's often a primary influence, which could come from literature or fine art. And then it trickles down. It travels from one art form to another. Mm-hmm. And so the Arts and Crafts movement, to my understanding, it, starts, it started with architecture and then the gardens were informed by the architecture and vice versa and started in, in Europe. These movements are often started as a response to an existing movement. So there's the Beaux-Arts movement, which you know, classical architecture ornamentation. So the mid-century modern in the U.S. is like very simple. So that's like a response to ornamentation as no ornamentation. Mm-hmm. And so the arts and crafts movement is more of a hand-hewn approach where you see the craftsmanship, you can tell that the beam has been hand-carved 
and the garden is not a fussy, perfect garden. There's perennials and roses and viburnum all growing together. So there's definitely intentionality, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a little more of a lighthearted approach. Like you can see the craftsmanship. So Judith Tanker really brings these designers and artists alive with great research. The Smithsonian is a great resource for garden research here in the U.S. And these well-known designers often have an archive. So you can look at Beatrix Ferrand's drawings. I think that might be at UC Berkeley. And so these authors, they are doing that. They're traveling to England, looking at Gertrude Jenkel's drawings. And so these books are really labors of love, would take multiple years. And I guess part of being an author, then they, they do talks and books and they would and they'd often do a book signing in person i mean these days people are doing online talks Mm -hmm. nice all right so there's a few titles from your bookshelf if you are listening and you haven't checked those out but you've been interested in some of the topics we cover here on the podcast we thought it might be nice to kind of talk about where we get some of our ideas from and what you're inspired by so And again, I mean, really, we love the feedback. So if you have any titles you'd like to suggest that we check out, we would love to. So I think that's it for today. But is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we go? Well, let's see. We continue to work on classes. Mm. We're excited to offer the Bergen and Ball tools. Yeah. That's going well. I'm giving some in-person or some synchronous courses. Mm -hmm. So we'll have that information available. We're uploading more and more videos to our YouTube channel, which... Some of that is hand pruning work. Others is, is just videos from landscapes that we visit, both designed and wild. So check that out. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. A little plug in there for our other work. So thank you very much for listening. And we look forward to coming up with another topic for you for next week. Until then, we hope you get a chance to visit your landscape or maybe read about a landscape in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Thank Thanks you. for listening. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.